This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. School systems worldwide are struggling to figure out if, when, and how to reopen schools. Educational planning during a pandemic is no easy task, especially when there is little evidence that can be used to guide policy. But I want to just to emphasize that the fact that we don't know so much as we would like about this disease, uh, that we have just very limited and emerging evidence about rates of transmissions in schools, and that this evidence is kind of going in different directions. My guest today is Karen Mundy, Professor of International and Comparative Education at the University of Toronto. She is a leading expert on education in the developing world and former Chief Technical Officer at the Global Partnership for Education, known as the GPE. I wanted to speak with Karen since part of her job at the GPE was to work through delicate planning issues with government and school officials worldwide. What advice would she give school planners today? You're going to have to make decisions in a context of uncertainty and possible um, unexpected change. So when you make decisions of that kind, and you have, you, you, of course you need to use science and data as much as you can, but you also have to realize that there are competing values that have to be addressed. And the only way to get people to hang together, to trust that your decisions are right, is to bring them to the table. Karen Mundy, welcome back to Fresh Ed. Hi, Will, and thanks for inviting me during the middle of a pandemic. I know. it's. Uh, I hope you're doing well, and um, it is the topic of discussion today. I mean, there's been this huge conversation happening worldwide, pretty much, about how to get children back into schools, how to reopen schools. So I invited you on to talk about some of these larger issues um, since you have, you know, a long career in educational research, but also have practical experience working in uh, education development and planning. So I guess to start, you know, what do we know at this moment in terms of reopening schools? Like, what does the research tell us that, that currently exists? Well, we have a problem. And the problem that we have with this pandemic is that we actually have reasonably limited evidence to rely upon in guiding the decision about reopening schools. And some of the evidence is contradictory. And so we're in a position where we have to make decisions based on limited and evolving evidence uh, and do our very best with it and balance very uh, diverse or different kinds of possible harms, possible risks. So I guess backing up, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a doctor. And so what I'm going to report to you is based on, um, I guess, a kind of frenetic following of the pandemic news, the COVID uh, news uh, from the media. And I've been following very carefully. So I think one of the things that emerges very clearly is that this virus has less intense effects on those who are younger, the younger generation. Although in the, re- in the past week, we've learned Uh, one important new piece of information about the uh, different levels of uh, effects or transmissibility of the disease through two different age sets, so uh, zero to about age 10, uh, reasonably less chance of transmitting, we think, um, and above age 10 now, we think, seem to uh, transmit quite similar to adults. Those are new pieces of information. 
And other pieces about transmission are evolving really quickly and have changed so much, I think, that it's been quite confusing to the public. So, for example, early on, we thought we shouldn't wear masks. Now we think we should wear masks. There have been quite a bit of debate over can children wear masks and at what age can they effectively wear masks? Today, I listened to a podcast uh, from uh, Sanjay Gupta, the CNN uh, medical reporter, where he went into a daycare center and he found that all the kids, even for three and four-year-olds, were able to wear masks pretty consistently. So we have a big debate about who can wear masks and, and should they, but we now know at least that we should wear masks, we should be socially distanced, uh, we need ventilation. I mean, these things are much clearer now than they were even a month ago. Uh, so we do know that. But what we still don't know really are things like what is the long-term harm caused by the disease. There's some hesitation about the long-term or possible hidden impacts on children, for example, in lung, lung scarring. Uh, we've seen uh, this uh, reports of some deaths among children, very, very small in number, a much lower risk than even, I think, the average flu but still a present, a present danger. And then we know that there's a larger effect of the disease on older people. And of course, in a school, a schools are made out of kids plus a workforce. And that workforce often does include people in uh, the age sets that are more vulnerable or people with other kinds of immune uh, compromised statuses that, that may be more affected. And of course then, do the kids bring it home? And that's what every parent is thinking about. Um, and do they add to uh, the viral transmission? Do they? Yes, probably. Maybe with the older ones more than the younger ones. I think the key question is risk has to be evaluated against the extent of community transmission. So we need to know how much transmission there is in a community to judge the risk of kids being in school and the risk of them acting as uh, vectors for other uh, clusters and outbreaks. Uh, and we also um, uh, need to know how ready the system, the health system is to receive cases. So uh, um, any additional risk of transmission is much higher if hospitals or ICU beds are not available. If hospital ICU beds are available, then risk is lower because there's medical uh, opportunities to medically offset some of that risk. So I think that's about as much I'm, as I want to say about the epidemiology. Um, but I want to just again emphasize that the fact that we don't know so much as we would like about this disease, uh, that we have um, just very limited and emerging evidence about rates of transmissions in schools, and that this evidence is kind of going in different directions. So you see the example of Israel, where we've seen widespread transmission in school settings, possibly because they didn't do social distancing and they had uh, large, they didn't deconcentrate classrooms. And then we have, you know, an example like Denmark, almost no transmission caused, uh, traced within schools. And, and similarly, in some of the Asian countries uh, that have, are now reporting data. So we have different kinds of information. We don't know enough, but we probably, now here I'm gonna step out on a limb. I think we probably know that where, the, where uh, community public health has the virus under control, there are opportunities to safely reopen schools. So that's, I think that's, that's what I've concluded from what I've read. It's not with completely without risk, but I think we can manage that risk 
reasonably well where there is low community transmission. That wouldn't be most of the, yeah, most of the places, most of the United States, the districts in the United States that are not opening, it's because they don't have community control. It's a really interesting moment if you are an education policymaker or planner, because as you're saying, decisions have to be made with very limited evidence and knowledge. And it makes me wonder, is there any past experience that decision makers can draw on? So in, in, you know, we might not have full information about COVID specifically, but has there been past cases that have been similar in effect that might help us guide how we make decisions going forward? I think that the the, the past experiences that are most relevant and also where we have the most robust evidence really are related to disruptions in schooling and the longer term, short term and longer term impacts on children. So we have very, very good and very interesting uh, recent research coming out on past cases, for example, in Pakistan related to the earthquake. Uh, we know from a very good study in Argentina where actually labor uh, disruptions cause forced uh, large scale school closings over a number of years and we know what happens over both the short term sort of from the summer slide or learning loss in different contexts and also over the long term when the, when a child who has had their education disrupted early on how does that affect their life chances when they're young adults so in both cases we have some pretty strong data about the harm that is done to children through uh, both learning loss and the loss of some of the other protections that schools offer. So school feeding, social and emotional uh, health, and so on. So that, that side of the risk uh, ledger is actually really well, well known and pretty well documented. And I think it's for that reason that you're seeing perhaps even more forthrightly than folks in the education sector proper uh, coming out with guidance that is urging school systems to reopen. So, you know, an example of this would be most of the uh, pediatric medical associations in OECD countries have come forward with recommendations that privilege reopening and also suggest some prioritized uh, targets for reopening. So reopen for the younger children first, both uh, um, on the basis of their um, less uh, likely to be severely affected, but also because their needs for direct engagement are more urgent. Open for uh, uh, kids who come from uh, families families where there isn't the opportunity for, you know, more robust homeschooling, where they need the social protections offered by the school more urgently than uh, uh, sort of kids from more privileged backgrounds. So you see the medical associations coming in with very, very uh, elaborate, but very, very strong recommendations for reopening schools, provided that the public school systems are adequately funded to offer mitigation of risks. And that funding you can see in, in even high performing you know, education systems, high resource systems, my own system, Ontario, the ministries of education and the government has not stepped forward to indicate that it will provide that necessary funding. Situation is much more dire in the United States where uh, states' budgets can't, uh, they can't run on a deficit and there is absolutely no 
a leeway for district budgets to grow to address these uh, risk mitigation measures that are so needed. Um, and I might, might add that, in fact, uh, reports from the U.S. suggest districts are going to face funding cuts more than 20% and have some have are already furloughing teachers. So you're going in exactly the opposite direction that one, one would hope. What about in low and middle income countries? Would it look different there? I, I think, first of all, in, again, what probably the, the variance is, yes, it's important to think what would happen in a low and a middle income country uh, based on uh, the degree of transmission, the rates of transmission, and the capacity of the health sector to provide uh, medical services. So risk is much higher if hospitals are not, hospitals and healthcare is not available. Um, and of course that will be true in low-income countries, generally health systems are not robust, not uh, uh, can't uh, as easily respond to a virus. So risk is higher. Um, for this reason, you see countries like Kenya having announced uh, last week, I believe, that it will not reopen schools in this academic year. Uh, it simply doesn't feel it has the ability to, to manage the risk. Um, other countries, and I'll, I'll speak of one that I've been doing a little bit of work in Ghana, has, is, is moving towards a school reopening at the moment based on uh, you know, their current um, COVID status, um, they're, they're planning to, to reopen. Um, two things, the, in, those, in, in countries, um, there are a few countries where there are large numbers of children out of school, where health systems are extremely weak, uh, and where um, children rely on schools for social protections, especially for school feeding programs, where the trade-offs on both sides are very intense and very difficult to assess. They, on the one hand, they, they are not able to mitigate risks within the school. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the risk to the child of not being in school are very high. For this reason, you would see, for example, some of the UNICEF guidance um, weighing heavily on trying to keep those schools open, uh, trying to find low-cost ways of providing some of the protections, you know, teaching outside, um, you know, hand-washing systems that are basically buckets of water but with good soap, uh, use of low-cost masks, that sort of thing. You you see people trying to find workarounds. So uh, one thing that's very noticeable if you look across the landscape is that the drivers for reopening are quite different and sometimes the decision to reopen is a little bit perverse. So as an example, uh, this week we're watching um, f uh, in Florida governor announcing that all schools should reopen regardless of the fact that there's a high uh, rate of transmission of COVID happening. It's a really big spike in Florida now. Hospital ICUs are full and so on. Uh, and the teachers are teachers uh, uh, and others are taking the governor to, to court because of a lack of safety. So that decision wasn't made, as I've described it, with this notion of how do we balance and offset risks and compare harms to the student against those risks and our ability to offset them. Um, so in the U.S. you see a lot of that. You see a lot of uh, states or districts opening schools even though they, even though they can't mitigate the risk. Uh, on the other hand, um, you, know, you see some 
places, I would give my province of Ontario as one, where um, policymakers are, are rather hesitant about reopening, even though the health system is reasonably well prepared and they've already been able to kind of plank the virus uh, down. That's perhaps related more to a sense of overall risk than it is, or some people in my province would say, some advocates would say it's it's related to a, an unwillingness to provide the funding needed to open. <laughs> but sometimes it, you see the decisions being made not based on this balance of harms and, and risks that I've described and mitigation efforts not being adequately in place. Yeah, I mean, it's not just a sort of technical problem that gets you know, carefully thought through. There's there's a larger political economy in which they're sort of these decisions are being made within. It does make me wonder all of this, you know, what you're sort of describing is it, it almost seems like in a perfect scenario, uh, each school will be able to assess risk sort of individually and be able to respond quickly to, to whatever they're finding. If there's more cases that are happening, I've heard things about individual, like almost individual classes could either suspend, go online if if more COVID cases are found without having to shut down the whole school. And so it just seems like there's a real range of possibilities across countries not, and within countries as to what reopening might look like. So it makes me wonder, you know, should we be concerned about, you know, inequality that's going to emerge from this very reopening process because it's going to affect students so differently? Some students are going to have so much more learning next year than other students who are going to be, you know, where the schools are going to be closed. So, you know, how should we begin to think about inequality going forward? It's a really good question because we already have to take, I mean, I think, I think we would have to start by asking ourselves, you know, we're seven months into a pandemic. What kinds of inequality has already been reinforced or uh, exaggerated by the initial seven-month response, educational response to this uh, pandemic. So what do we know? We already know that children from less privileged backgrounds are much more greatly harmed by the move to online learning, uh, by the loss of uh, social uh, and other kinds of protections that schools offer. And there's really good uh, evidence and data showing this. At the same time, I think there's been um, a little bit of magical thinking worldwide about the role that technology will play. A lot of efforts to use to, you know, learning management platforms and to get everybody into online learning. Uh, and it was very humbling to see how rapidly that fell apart, uh, even in high resource systems. So, you know, in England and in Canada, about, about more than... Uh, 30% of kids just didn't have access to um, the internet or, or to technology on a re regular basis that could support them. So then what do you do? Some developing countries moved much more rapidly to opening uh, what I call low-tech solutions, so radio and television. But the stark story there is that children uh, from uh, lower-income households often don't have radios and televisions either. Um, some uh, estimates in Africa, for example, place less than 50% of kids having access to a radio and or a television. Uh, so again, even though the countries, in a way, I think, why didn't 
Ontario, for example, have more use of radio and television, uh, especially for the younger groups. But but even but countries that even tried that just still didn't have the reach. Um, you know what? There's some interesting new work. I saw a piece come out yesterday uh, where um, effective use of uh, cell phones for sort of prompts or text SMS messaging for prompts and uh, parental engagement have been have proven to be quite effective in sustaining both learning and engagement in Botswana. So that was that was fascinating. And it, it strikes me that the lesson we learn here is that engaging with parents more fully is very important part of this. It's not just about providing a lot of content. It's about providing uh, the supports to parents so that they can scaffold their kids' learning. And that becomes more difficult with parents who don't have access to cell phones or are not literate, but still it still can be done and should we should pay attention. So I've just said something about like the learning loss and the fact that possibly we didn't really have as much of an equity focus in the last seven months as would have been optimal. Now what's going to happen in the coming year? First of all, I, I think the, the going trend uh, ta- hashtag on, on Twitter lately has been about um, learning pods. So I think this is going to happen all over the place. So what are learning pods? So upper middle class parents decide that regardless if the school reopens even, they will not send their children back into the school because they do not trust that the mitigated mitigating measures have been taken, that that all risks have been averted, they will group together and hire their own teacher or tutors and sort of create homeschooling pods. It sounds like shadow education gone mad. It sounds like shadow education gone mad. Uh, I must admit that I, I, I would never have thought how rapidly uh, this would explode. But you know, yesterday, for example, a very renowned education economist in, announced on Twitter that he would like, he's thinking about moving to a different province, a province with a late, very low prevalence rate uh, with his family so that his kids can get back to school in September because he has no, no confidence in our government here in Ontario. I think you're going to see that all over the place. Um, anybody I know whose kids were in a private school uh, found that they could move into online learning very effectively and into synchronous online learning very effectively. Now, this is in rich country uh, contexts. In, in developing country contexts where you already have a lot of tutorial shadow education going on, I think, I think uh, this will expand. Less clear what will happen to sort of more sort of 9 to 5 K to 12 private schools, especially low fee private schools, because parents just won't, those parents, the parents that were sending kids uh, with their one and extra dollar a day, uh, um, they, they probably won't be able to afford it. So I expect to see some migration of kids out of low fee private schools back into public schools in, in low and lower middle income uh, countries. But it's a very interesting dynamic, very scary, actually, you know, um, think about I'm thinking about South Africa, where yesterday I saw uh, a, a leading educator complain that the, that despite that they have pretty good data on transmission rates and outbreaks among kids in South African schools, uh, in the Western Cape, that uh, teachers were blocking, um, blocking return to school, and how could they be so illogical? Science tells us. And um, in counter to that, um, one of a colleague responded, but you know, there have been 30 deaths among teachers, so 
are they really all wrong? And of course, my thought was, did they bring the teachers to the table? A very wise epidemiologist in, in Toronto posted a video yesterday showing what they do in the hospital so that people feel secure to go to work there every day despite COVID and explained that the same could be achieved in schools but it would require bringing health and education uh, frontline workers together and that teachers themselves know what routines are possible and not possible under COVID but until they're fully engaged in really weighing out risks and mitigations themselves, you're really unlikely to get them back into school because they, they're afraid. So this level of deliberation about how to mitigate risks appropriately and doing that effectively is actually an aspect of governance that I think most ministries of education are not so good at. Right. By, by bringing in all of these different stakeholders together in a deliberative process to come to a consensus together rather than being told from on high what to do. And, and that's probably true at a school level, even more so than at the ministry level. So do school leaders or district leaders have the autonomy and discretion and the resources? I just keep wanting to emphasize that because if central government doesn't provide the resources for uh, substitute teachers, doesn't provide the resources for the PPE and the uh, school cleaning and the hand sanitation, then it's a non-starter. And so governments really have to put, put those funds out there. And international donors too can help with this. And, and some are. Some are leaning very heavily into it. I know that uh, both the GPE and the World Bank are restructuring grants to allow for both you know, some COVID interventions related to technology, but also sanitation and social protection type uh, interventions. So you've worked with the Global Partnership for Education or GPE for quite a few years and have probably been involved in a lot of difficult conversations when it comes to education planning worldwide in many different countries. What sort of advice would you have for education planners today, someone trying to figure out how to navigate this very tricky situation we all find ourselves in right now. What would be the what would be some tips? Well, I think we've just covered one of the main tips, which is you're going to have to make decisions in a context of uncertainty and possible um, unexpected change. So when you make decisions of that kind, and you have, you, you, of course, you need to use science and data as much as you can, but you also have to realize that there's some, there are competing values that have to be addressed. And the only way to get people to hang together, to trust that your decisions are right, is to bring them to the table. So don't forget to involve teachers and administrators in really thinking through how they, how they can address the problems. And maybe you're going to find some uh, innovation, some some leadership among uh, people that you didn't expect it from. I was uh, heartwarming to see, you know, teachers um, going out on their bicycles um, to bring learning kits to to kids uh, in uh, various countries, um, trying to make sure that they retained some kind of contact with the kids. So, I, I think bringing them to the table is very important. And just really recognizing that this bridge between health and education is so important in this context, 
but not so that the health folks will uh, tell the education folks what they can and cannot do, but that the health folks can say, here's what we think are risk mitigations. Do you think those will work in the daily routines of your school, your community, and so on? Um, if there's anything a ministry can do to have clear traffic signals, traffic lights, dashboard, something that allows parents to feel that there's um, a good quality of evidence about community transmission, um, good quality evidence about uh, the ability of the healthcare system to respond to and mitigate risk of transmission. Uh, if they understand very clearly at what point the school might be opened versus, and what point might it be closed? Will it be, what are the safety measures? Communication is everything and don't expect communication um, hits the mark the first time out. It has to really be a communication campaign to build back parents' sense of comfort and um, you know, sense that the risks have been, have been mitigated. And then you know, perhaps my number one suggestion is really think about um, the about equity and the long-term harms that the loss of schooling is um, doing doing to children especially the most vulnerable and it won't it won't be popular but making sure that you've really targeted resources to the most vulnerable populations is very important so that probably means reopening schools for those populations providing additional uh, wraparound social supports for those populations. And I'm here, I'm thinking not only of children um, from uh, less well-off families, but also children with disabilities. They have to be served. And, you know, finally, just bring in the communities. People are, um, you know, very, very interested in seeing kids back in school. I don't know a parent who doesn't want this to, to happen. Um, and they, first of all, the capacity to support learning and they have ideas about how to deconcentrate schools, which spaces can be used, how can we uh, tap some of the young people in uh, to provide um, peer mentoring or uh, tutoring uh, wraparound supports for those when school goes online again. You know, these, these creative ideas, I think, the thinking outside the box um, are very important. You know what I think is the most astonishing? And I wake up and I take a deep breath every day because I, I think about the fact that, that this is not the worst pandemic we're likely to see in my lifetime. So it's like a trial run of a pandemic. Uh, and so, you know, if I were talking to a minister, I would be saying, are you collecting enough evidence? Are you reflecting on what you're learning? Are you going to be able to build in those lessons into your um forward planning for your ministry because this is probably not the last time you're going to see a crisis of some kind um, and there is a prob possibly an even worse uh, pandemic so how we behave during this pandemic i think it sort of sets the tone for for really the resilience of the whole system in the future well karen mundy thank you so much for joining fresh ed please come back on later in the autumn once we know more of yeah. how this has actually panned out. So thanks again for joining. Thank you, Will. Take care. Stay safe. You too. Karen Mundy is Professor of International and Comparative Education at the University of Toronto. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, 
which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. FreshEd's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushik Waba, Fatih Akhtas, and In Jung Cho. Original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. FreshEd is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider becoming a monthly sponsor of FreshEd by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. All U.S.-based donations are tax-deductible. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.